America in 2023 under Joe Biden, or more accurately, Barack Obama's shadow government, pro-Hamas demonstrators tear down American flags, intimidate Jewish Americans, and just to ice the cake, are protected and coddled by the administration's national strategy to combat Islamophobia. Our forefathers are turning in their graves. The show starts now. Well, it was another weekend filled with peace, love, and justice in the city so nice they named it twice. Pro-Palestine mobs took to the streets to rip down American flags, block traffic, and yet another mostly peaceful act. They surrounded Grand Central Station and attempted to breach the outer doors to attack the police officers sheltering inside. You know, it's rather hard to believe and even more difficult to swallow that a mere 22 years after Muslim terrorists crashed planes into the Twin Towers on September 11th, killing thousands of innocent Americans, our leaders are now fully allowing pro-Palestinian mobs to rip down American flags and on Veterans Day, no less. Is that what Islamophobia looks like? I'm confused. You know, I've asked this before, but it's worth begging the question once again. If you're Jewish and still planning to vote Democrat, why? Just why? Furthermore, after the summer riot season of 2020 and now the open support of terrorism in your streets, if you still choose to live in New York City, why? Just why? Because yes, while Muslim terrorists would love to exterminate and slaughter Jews, don't be fooled, they want to kill us all and the members of the rainbow crowd would be the first to go. Yet America continues to allow it and as for our institutions of higher learning, well, they too sit idly by and coddle it because get this, if they were to suspend students participating in these anti-Israel, anti-Semitic events, those students might get deported because they aren't citizens. Yeah, no joke. Our American universities are not only holding water for pro-Hamas students, but holding water for pro-Hamas non-citizen students. If you're a non-citizen ripping down American flags, intimidating Americans, and vandalizing our property, you should be deported immediately because we owe you nothing, so goodbye. But it's not just the non-citizen students to blame, of course. Plenty of middle to upper class privileged college brats join in on this. But why and how? How has this pro-Hamas propaganda infiltrated our college system? Who is really driving the grassroots anti-Israel activism right here in America? Well, it turns out there is research that answers that very question. And joining me now to help us wade through it all and understand it is my friend and Israeli political strategist, Philippe Azaline. Philippe, it's great to have you back so soon. I'm so happy we're diving into this. Obviously, a couple weeks ago, we had you talking about the aftermath of the terror attacks in Israel. But these pro-Palestinian, free Palestine, Gaza, whatever you know they want to call themselves, still in the streets on a weekly basis, still taking over entire swaths of the world with their activism. Uh, it doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon. But, Philippe, they're talking about this being about a ceasefire. I'm not convinced that that's really what this is about. No, first of all, Tommy, it's great to be back and, and, and nice to see you again. Um, I asked myself the questions you asked in your uh, introduction and your monologue. How is it that they're getting so many students to follow them? How can you get, we spoke about it last time, queers for justice in Palestine when right now, you know, they'd be killed by Hamas. It's pretty obvious. Um, these are not pro-Palestinian groups, really. They're anti-Western groups. And what I was able to discover, I used to be a litigator. I couldn't figure out what was happening. But what I was able to discover was that 
they manage to make their propaganda appealing the way brands work, the way drugs work. They make it easy and emotionally satisfying. And that way they're able to, and by saying they, I mean, these are groups that originally were funded by the KGB. And now it's funded by groups that are associated with the Muslim Brotherhood. They're able to make it very, very appealing for young Americans to feel kinship with the Palestinian cause and, and hatred for Israel. Yeah, it's quite obvious that it's it's working. You know, you know, I've talked about this for weeks now. It feels like there is a segment of these protesters who really maybe are evil and hate Jewish people and hate Israel, and they've been born and bred to believe that. But it seems like there is also another segment of these protest activist groups that really are, as you said, they don't really know what they're out there for. They would never journey to Gaza. They would never put themselves in a precarious situation, but they, they feel like they, they might. Who knows? Maybe they're that dumb. But it, it, it. A lot of them end up going. But look, what you're saying is absolutely true, and that's the real danger. You have something that's operating where you have a core, foreign money, using this as a weapon for Hamas, right? It's not a ceasefire, like you said. It's to protect Hamas. Israel wins. So there's a ceasefire, right? We need a ceasefire. If, if Hamas was fighting, nobody would be called. If Hamas was winning, it's still firing rockets at us. But if Hamas were winning, they would never be calling for a ceasefire. So it's this group, political, funded from abroad, originally related to the USSR, that's manipulating Americans from within. Started with Edward Said. And through my work now, what I do is polling to try to understand the deeper psychological reasons people are drawn to ideas and brands. And it's the same thing. And it kind of works like drugs. So they'll go to, you know, you have the woke movement in the US and identity politics, which is dividing everybody. So people need to feel belonging. They need to feel solidarity. So they'll go to black students and tell them, hey, you're fighting racism. Israel's racist against Palestinians. They'll go to Mexican students. And you can see this in pictures. It's flagrant. The cultural appropriation is brazen. And they'll go, while they're increasing division through woke and identity politics, they're going to Mexican students saying, you have to face offense, we have offense. They're going to evangelical students and telling them Jesus was a Palestinian. They're now claiming abortion is somehow related to justice in Palestine, which means really erasing Israel. Like they're really going to every group and co-opting them emotionally. Imagine being alone in high school and your only friend comes. The only person who wants to be your friend is a kind of bully, but they tell you, hey, I'm your friend. I'm the same as you. It's very tempting to fall into that. Once you've fallen into that, you'll believe anything. And that's what we're missing, the emotional ingredient here. It works like a drug. It's seduction. And it's done entirely to advance military and political aims. And I can prove it. I mean, it sounds dramatic. It sounds wrong. It's scary to think our students, and when I was at UCLA, I saw it happening. It's scary to think students in North America are being indoctrinated this way, but they are. This is not genuine grassroots activism. It's being funded and manipulated by, by specific people and, and from money with different, from different places. Talk to me about Students for Justice in Palestine. That name comes up a lot. It sounds like a really pure and mobile, uh, moral and noble name, but uh, when you dig into it, probably not so much. What do you know about that group? What can you tell us? Yeah. So they're responsible for a lot of the hate on campus. And when I say this, I'm not fighting Palestinian grievances. Justice for Palestinians matters. Israel, like I say, every time makes a ton of mistakes. And I, have, I can't look at the images on TV and not have empathy and compassion for Palestinians. I'm a father and I see children and I, and I suffer. But they're not advancing Palestinian rights or they'd be fighting Hamas. They are groups started by the American Muslims for Palestine which is a group that was came in turn from the Islamic Association for Palestine, which the FBI said was related to the Muslim Brotherhood. 
There's one guy at Berkeley called Hatem Bazian who's been instrumental in connecting that kind of anti-Jewish, anti-Western ideology and, and camouflaging it as uh, a leftist ideology and, and making alliances with leftist groups on campus. And the IAP in 2005, the FBI said it was related to the Muslim Brotherhood. This was in the wake of 9-11. In turn, those organizations were related to MAS, the Muslim Association, no, Muslim American Society, I believe, and ICNA, the Islamic Circle of North America. Now, this is research I did a few years back, but you can look into it, and I think it's still quite relevant. And when they are in their conferences, they make very different declarations, right? The, the guy tearing down the American flag at Veterans Day, which is insane insane arrogance and, and, and lack of gratitude. What you were hearing in the background was the Islamic declaration of faith. It wasn't anything to do with Palestinian rights. If people were saying ceasefire, get rid of Hamas, find a peaceful solution, I'd probably be supporting them. But this was tearing down a flag, so they're angry at the US, on Veterans Day, and chanting an Islamic declaration of faith. There's that poison behind a lot of this, not all of it, but a lot of it. And that's what's scary. That's what's dangerous. It's disingenuous. And so many students have, have been sedu seduced by it that now you have violence. Now you have students chanting for Hamas, not pa Palestinian rights, right? They're like defending people who rape, mass rape women, rape culture. Woke students are defending rape culture. Yeah. Well, it's similar to the BLM movement that we saw, of course, uh, hit a fever pitch in 2020, where looting and rioting was also excused in the name of George Floyd. So well, these people are clearly impressionable. But you brought up certain chants, certain Islamic chants. That's why I want to ask you about this. Uh, we have a congresswoman named Rashida Tlaib, and she has been censored because of her, her numerous, numerous what I would call anti-Semitic uh, rhetoric, the times that she's done this. But she attempted to explain away the chant from the river to the sea, saying that it was an aspirational chant about freedom and human rights. Most people didn't see it that way, but I would love to get your take on what that phrase means and what you think she intended it for it to mean. So I'll address both the things you raised. Black Lives Matter is a movement that was completely hijacked by SJP type people. Very early on, look, it's very hard for anybody, I think, to, to not be sensitive to racism, right? America has a history. My own parents are refugees. They fled North Africa because of racism. So initially, I think we would all be well disposed to it. However, from the beginning, the SJP crowd hijacked that movement. It said, from Ferguson to Palestine, occupation is a crime. One of the first chants. That has nothing to do with black rights. Just like from the river to the sea, it's always catchy. It's always junk food for the brain. It's always easy to remember. From the river to the sea has nothing to do with human rights. You want human rights? You get rid of Hamas. You give Palestinians democracy and individual rights, the right to be free, the right to be Christian or Jewish or whatever they might want. They don't have that. From the river to the sea is the right of Arabs to control the entire Middle East. And sometimes when they say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be free, in Arabic, they say from the river to the sea, Palestine will be Arab. And so there's a lot of duplicity here. Rashida Tlaib is a hypocrite. She knows very well that this has nothing to do with human rights. It's about eliminating Israel. And it's not about eliminating Israel through ballots or peacefully. It's what we saw, right? It's it's after what we saw. It takes a, a, a grotesque level of insensitivity, but also of hypocrisy to say that's about human rights after what we saw. Yeah, no doubt. I saw something actually put out by Piers Morgan this morning, and I thought it was interesting. It was kind of a letter to the editor that was in 
I believe, a newspaper in London, but it said of all the protests going on in the United States and London and around the world, this free Palestine, uh, talking about a ceasefire, you didn't see anybody holding up signs, free the hostages, and maybe saying, hey, if Hamas would unconditionally, no conditions, release all the hostages, there could be a ceasefire. That's not on the table at all here. It's give us 6,000 of our fighters back and we'll give you 200 hostages. But it's not, there hasn't been calls for release the hostages and then we'll have a humanitarian pause that they claim that they want. Interesting, no, nobody's really picking weapon. on that. It's a political weapon the same way AJ Plus was a political weapon. That even the Arab, a lot of the Arab states banned AJ Plus because it was influencing people for Islamist ideas posing as human rights. Ceasefire means protect Hamas. They're not asking for Hamas to stop firing rockets. They're telling Israel, stop fighting Hamas. Now, the tragedy is you have a lot of civilian suffering, a lot of Palestinian children, cute kids. I would love to even, you know, be friends with my kids. They're suffering tremendously, but that's because of what Hamas does. And nobody wants to even talk about that. Now, I can understand these organizations who are a front for political aims. Don't do it. But why doesn't the press do it? Why, doesn't the pre why is the press always putting the suffering of Palestinians in people's living rooms and, and taking advantage of, of Americans' kindness, but never taking the extra step of saying, what can we do to actually stop this, right? What can we do? Who's actually responsible for this at the end of the day? Is it the people trying to get rid of terrorists or is it the people building a headquarters in a hospital precisely because if Israel attacks, they can then say, look, Israel are barbarians. Right. Well, the solution to peace in the Middle East is not one that you and I are going to come up with today. But do you think that there is maybe a solution or steps that could be taken, at least as it relates to college kids here in the United States, maybe in the UK as well, to understand that the groups that they're advocating for are not the groups that they believe that they are or some way to break this propaganda cycle? Is there anything that can be done at this point? I think... The reason I'm so grateful you bring up the propaganda all the time, and you're one of the only people who do it that, I, that I've spoken to, is that the more we speak about it, the more people might become aware of how they're being manipulated. I don't have any problem being people being pro-Palestinian. I have people, I have a problem with people being manipulated into hating innocent people and thinking that's helping Palestinians. It doesn't. So I think awareness is very important, and it's not even close to where it needs to be. There also needs to be a sexier message on the other side. Now, when it comes to the Middle East itself for peace, I have to be optimistic. I tell you this every time because I have kids here. I think the press is the biggest problem. When you keep treating Hamas now and the Palestinians always as victims, it's a victory for terrorist groups. Terrorist groups love being the victims. This is what they feed on. Nasrallah on Saturday, the leader of Hezbollah said, look, the world is realizing we're victims and it's opposing Israel. This for them is a victory. And Israelis who just came out of a genocide 80 years ago within living memory feel besieged. And they're like, everybody's unfair with us. We can't listen to anybody. we got to be like mama bear on our guard to protect our children. So it creates more war to pity the Palestinians. This is not to say we shouldn't have empathy. We should have tremendous empathy. But that means looking at the real root cause and, and no longer having sympathy with groups like Hamas, who are funded by Iran, Qatar, other places, and, and enjoy now the support on U.S. campuses that is for them like oxygen. Right. Well, and also, it would be nice to see the Jewish students on campus get some support from administrations. That would be a good step. There are some Americans and some heavyweight Jewish Americans that are sounding the alarm and having real impact. I guess I'm, I'm grateful to them 
for using their voice and their platform. Not many are willing to do it on the Jewish side, on the Jewish-American side. So I'm happy to see that. Maybe that will carry some weight. But until then, I think it's just up to, again, parents to educate their children, hopefully from a young age, TikTok. to question everything. TikTok. TikTok is, is there was an article that came up in the New York Times two weeks ago, I believe, about how China is using social media to push pro-Hamas messages. TikTok is overwhelmingly, if the research I saw is to be believed, pro-Hamas. Now, my research is in why the messaging connects with young people's emotions, right? Like the way brands do. Like, that's what I look at and why, why is it appealing to them? I look at also, I'm starting to look at like the quantity of bots and the amount of, of repetition. Repetition is how we learn. And so that's also got to be talked about. There's talk about Russian disinformation all the time, but here's a really live case of Chinese involvement through TikTok that also is playing a bad role in what young Americans are made to believe. Also interesting because I don't think that you would see anything on TikTok talking about the human rights abuses of the Chinese Communist Party, of which there are many. You won't see that on TikTok. You won't see justice for those marginalized groups in China, but you'll see plenty of pro-Hamas, pro-Palestine. Uh, again, TikTok is a, is a mind virus. It's brain numbing. Unfortunately, I don't think it's going anywhere. So the understanding of it. Sorry to interrupt you, Tommy, but I think it's important that I mention this. I've been amazed by the number of Arabs, including Arab Israelis, but not just Palestinians, not just the son of the Hamas founder. A lot of Palestinians are starting to speak up. Now, if they speak up, their lives are in danger. And a lot of Arabs and Muslims and Palestinians have been speaking up. And that doesn't mean they're pro-Israel. That doesn't mean they agree with everything Israel does. It might even mean they don't agree with Israel's founding. But they are starting to speak up about the uh, the, the evil that is Hamas. And I think That's that that is also going to be part of the solution. That's great to hear. Uh, we hope for more of that bravery. Philippe, as always, I appreciate you being here for spreading the word and giving us some insight into the manipulation that's going on, certainly in the United States and around the world. Stay safe, my friend, and I'll talk to you soon. Thank you very much. Thank you for having me. Good Thank to see you. you. All right. The narrative and the so-called activism in the streets is only part of the problem. The other part is a big part. And it's the big gaping hole that we once called a border. Hundreds of those on the terror watch list have been caught, likely hundreds more haven't. We don't know who is coming in or why, but we do know who's allowing it, and shucks, they do too. States and most of Europe, the only two places on earth that would allow millions of people from places who hate us to be given a free pass, plus perks and benefits to come on in. But my next guest is not only a veteran army ranger, but also a former U.S. Border Patrol agent. Joining me now is author of Borderline Defending the Homefront, available tomorrow, November 14th, Vincent Vargas. Vincent, it's great to have you. We've been looking forward to this book. I've been seeing you tease it for a while now, and I'm so curious to see what you write about and what you talk about. But let's go back to the top of my introduction there and talk about the current state of our border under Joe Biden and this administration. You know, from the work that you've done, the things that you've seen both in Border Patrol and in the military, what would you say is the current status of our security down south? Yeah, it's currently, uh, it is overwhelmed and, and undermanned and extremely challenging for our agents. 
I can't imagine what it's like to be a Border Patrol agent. Now, I know because I visited Border Patrol agents several times during the Trump administration, and I know that they were often demoralized because of media coverage, but they still were allowed to do their job. So they had a difficult time dealing with the public relations of it all, but they still felt like they could affect change. The Border Patrol agents that you still talk to, I'm sure many of them still your friends that you communicate with, what is the status of their morale? But also, are they able to do anything to protect and defend the country that they took an oath to protect and defend? Yeah, it's a little tough right now. You know, with, with the current policy that's in place and in, in just the massive influx of illegal immigrants, you know, there's very little that we have in place that can manage this situation. And it definitely leaves our agents feeling low morale because of the outside, you know, actors who talk negatively about the career field when they have no idea how challenging the, the career field is. Uh, they're handcuffed in a sense to 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 be able to do the things we believe we need to do to protect our nation. At the same time, they uphold what they're allowed to do, right? They don't write the policies. They just enforce what's told of them. And so currently, the massive influx of immigration that comes in, uh, they're, uh, all they do is essentially most of them are give-ups. They walk right up to the agents. They go and get processed. And after that, they wait for their time to see an immigration judge. It's kind of a weird loophole in the system that is actually causing a lot of issues down there. Yeah, they wait for their opportunity to see a judge, but two, three, four, five years down the road, they've already had a couple of kids. They're already well embedded into American society and culture. So I have a feeling that those immigration judges, they're essentially also handcuffed if they even ever get a chance to see a judge, if they ever show up at all. We know most don't. So that's part of the problem here. Once you tell people that you can get a free ticket in, a bus ticket, a plane ticket, you can go live where you want to live, they'll feed you, they'll clothe you, you might get a chance to work, but maybe not. You know, in New York, new reports coming out that only about 2% are taking advantage of work opportunities. The rest are just enjoying the lifestyle that's being afforded to them by the American public. Do you see this reaching a fever pitch in the next several months, the next couple of years? I mean, we can't continue to take on millions of people. Yeah, it's it's tough. We definitely cannot take on the the massive influx of of numbers of people that are coming into this country currently right now. It's overwhelming a lot of resources on the border patrol perspective. Um, you know, how do you continue to do that job when you feel when we have incentivized illegal immigration in a sense? Maybe not legally, like we didn't incentivize verbally, but what's happening it is becoming very easy to come across illegally. Instead of doing the right way, the legal format of becoming a uh, a you know, say a permanent resident uh, is is more challenging. And so, since they've kind of found the loophole in the immigration system, uh, they're going to continue to abuse that until we do something about it. I want to talk talk about the cartels as well. You know, you're no stranger to dealing not only with cartels and criminal organizations, but with entities that are enemies of freedom, enemies of America, enemies of, you know, humanity. So this is something that you've dealt with. But, you know, there's been several presidential candidates, you know, obviously Ron DeSantis being the most vocal of those presidential candidates that said, hey, listen, we need to engage with the cartels. These are essentially terrorist organizations, and we need to be able to engage with them. We need to be able to take them out. We need to free up the ability to, to go after them instead of just trying to keep them out or trying to interdict drugs. We actually need to go after the head of the snake. As somebody who's seen this, as somebody who's operated in that fashion, do you think that that's the next necessary step to gain control of our border? 
Uh, I don't know if it's the next necessary step. But when you start to use uh, the military uh, industry, you're saying that there is no other answer. And I think there probably is a few more options we can take before escalating to that level. Uh, you know, the bordering uh, country of Mexico has to partake in, in supporting this as well. And, and they have to be able to, you know, support this whole effort and protecting their side. And so, yeah, there's a lot of challenges when, when that question is the tough one to answer because I am a special operations soldier. I know what it takes to do that job. And if you're calling us to do our job, that means that every other effort has been exhausted. And I don't believe we're there yet. I think there's other things we can implement. I just wonder, though, that with the money that's involved and in, in bringing fentanyl across the United States and the, the power that these cartels and criminal organizations wield, I mean, yes, you can threaten a tariff on Mexico, get them to do their part in some capacity, but it just feels like we're in an endless cycle of constantly chasing our tails when it comes to these criminal organizations because they are highly motivated. It doesn't seem as though we are. But not just cartels and criminal organizations. Let's talk about terrorism. I mean, I think it's no secret that a lot of us are really concerned right now, especially because we've got pro-Palestinian, pro-Hamas people in our own streets. Then we've got a wide open border. You're seeing people from all over the world take advantage of that wide open border. How close do you think we are to some kind of a major event that is spurred by someone coming across that border undetected or maybe even detected and just released anyway? Yeah, it's 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 challenging. Uh, definitely, we have you know outside actors coming into this country who don't uh, believe in what we stand for. Uh, you know, even if those numbers are, say, a 4%, but 4% of millions is a massive number. And currently, we, I believe, kind of, you know, there's there's two different thoughts of this. And part of me being the tactical sense, you know, I want to be prepared for the worst. And in that sense, it feels almost as if we are a Trojan horse as America stands of, you know, really bad people coming into our country and just standing by until it's time for them to act. And I take the stance of being ready for that event at all times. Does it frustrate you as somebody who's fought in wars on behalf of freedom, on behalf of the United States of America, who's gone overseas to fight these battles in, in deserts and, and where have you? Does it frustrate you that we're inviting it into our home soil, almost being complicit in importing what could be an extreme danger onto the homeland when there are so many of your brothers and sisters who have lost their lives fighting these very things? To me, that would be incredibly frustrating. I can't imagine what it's like for somebody who served. Yeah, it, it's, it, it is a frustrating time, especially for the, the men and women boots on ground who are doing the work. Uh, for me, I sit in the position of really understanding the complexities of immigration and legal immigration and the border career field. And, uh, you know, there's things that we need to do to really protect this nation. And we are kind of handcuffed at the moment of doing so. And that's a challenge. And that frustrates me, yes. But the only thing I can do is explain and educate people on the process of what the Border Patrol career field does. And that's why I wrote the book, is to hopefully we can answer the questions that people don't understand so that we can hopefully come down to a better re resolution of what we have today. We have to take a stance. We have to start using our votes. We have to be very uh, smart about how we use our messaging and explaining the truth of the border and not so much these very uh, you know extreme ideologies of it. The truth is it's a challenging time and we need to address it. As far as it is, as Border Patrol goes, you know, you're no longer in the field, but I'm sure you have many friends who still are. If they wanted to be effective in their jobs, if there needed to be policy changes that would make them more effective at their jobs, feel as though they could really tackle the problem, what would some of those policy changes in your eyes be? 
Yeah, you know, again, very complex, but when you what we have today, it feels like an incentivization of coming across illegally. Uh, we have to go back to some of the older policies we've had in place, things like Operation Streamline, where every individual who crossed illegally uh, spent time in jail. Uh, when you start to have repercussions for those actions, they start to slow down their process and they start to try and find other loopholes in the system. We have to punish people for coming over illegally. That is opposite to the conversation of someone who's seeking asylum. They still have the opportunity to do that. We are America. We're the land of opportunity. We are the land of immigrants. But at the same time, you have to follow those rules. And if you come over, if you come across and seek an asylum, we have to have a better system in place to really decipher who is genuinely seeking asylum and who is just using that for an opportunity to get across. And so we have to de-incentivize coming across illegally. We have to hold uh, harsher punishments for those who come across just trying to abuse our system. And we have to look at our streamlined system for people who come elite, uh, who come legally. We have to make that system in a way that doesn't take 12 years for someone who genuinely comes here to work their butt off to give back to the to back to our country, to invest back into the country. We can't make them wait 12 years for that opportunity as well. Yeah. I think it all starts with actually enforcing our border and cutting down on these phony asylum claims. You know, when you can just claim asylum for any reason whatsoever and then wait a few years to get your case heard, I think it's quite obvious what's going to happen. But your book comes out tomorrow, Vincent. Tell my listeners and my viewers what else they're going to read about in that book. What would surprise them to learn? Uh, I think the most surprising thing is we talk finally about the special operations of the Border Patrol. Uh, the one that don't they don't get talked about often, but you've seen them in the news chasing escaped convicts all over the nation. Uh, I was part of the Borstar team. I was attached to BORTAC when we went to chase down Matt and Sweat's two escaped convicts from New York. I highlight the special operations of the Border Patrol. My goal in writing this book is to humanize the badge of the Border Patrol, to give a voice to them because they don't have it, and as well as to show the career field of what it is. The most important job we have in our nation currently on our own soil, they have they save more lives than any other agency and they stop more drugs than any other agency we need to start respecting that career field we need to start loving on that career field and tell them thank you for what they do their service to america is forever we're indebted to them i agree border patrol uh border enforcement law enforcement first responders our military members they all need more appreciation more support more resources and hopefully we can encourage more people to want to answer that call to join those fields because right now we desperately need it Congratulations, Vincent, on the book. It looks like a fantastic one. Thank you for taking the time today, and thank you for all you've done to help secure our nation and to help fight for freedom around the world. Thank you very much. God bless. All right, our nation faces a lot of threats, a cornucopia, if you will. But if you ask Democrats, our biggest threats are climate change, Islamophobes, and, of course, white people. And that's why they, along with their comrades in the mainstream news media, go out of their way to bury stories, tragedies, murders, and manifestos that expose the rise of anti-whiteness in America. It's time for Final Thoughts. Last week in Las Vegas, a white high school student died after he was brutally beaten to death by a group of 15 teens, most of whom were black. And what was the reason, the excuse for this mob of thugs to pummel this boy to death? Well, 17-year-old Jonathan Lewis was reportedly targeted after he attempted to stand up for a smaller friend after that friend was robbed by the group before they threw him in the trash can. When Jonathan tried to get his friend's stolen item back, the mob turned on him and beat him into unconsciousness as he lay there curled up in a ball on the ground. 
The mob continued to punch and kick him even after he was out cold. Instead of helping Jonathan or calling the police, bystanders instead recorded the video and circulated it on social media. This has become the norm and standard practice, and that in and of itself is gut-wrenching. This is how young people behave in 2023. Content is king, and people, innocent people, are nothing but fodder for views, clicks, and entertainment. No morals, no conscience, no humanity. And of all the articles that have come out about the tragic and senseless bludgeoning of Jonathan Lewis, I haven't seen a single one mention race. I think we all know that if a group of predominantly white teens beat a black teen to death, cries of racism would reverberate from the New York Times to the Washington Post and back. The cries of racism would be deafening. But since it was a white boy attacked by a mob of mostly black kids, race is suddenly not an important part of the story. And the same thing goes for the Las Vegas teens who rammed a stolen vehicle into retired police chief Andreas Probst. Race left out of the coverage there again. Why? Convenient how that works, isn't it? I guess White Lives Matter doesn't raise billions in donations quite like the fraud scheme that was in his BLM Inc. But these attacks against white people are not unusual. They're not an anomaly. They just don't get coverage. Anti-whiteness is indeed a thing, and yeah, it's a problem. But for some reason, anti-whiteness is coddled and even celebrated. In fact, here is New York's Attorney General Letitia James doing just that. Stand up to an, an administration which is too male, too pale, and too stale. There you have it. It's become totally acceptable to demonize and vilify white people. It's become totally acceptable to specifically target white people and have it excused or passed off as a cure for white privilege or systemic racism. Look no further than the efforts to bury the Nashville trans shooters anti-white manifesto. So here are legitimate questions for the woke left and their friends in the media. Isn't all racism worth condemning? Aren't all hate crimes worth investigating? Boy, I would sure hope so. Those are my final thoughts. Be sure to stay tuned on Thursday night at 7 p.m. Eastern as Clay Travis and I sit down with Tunnel to Towers CEO Frank Siller ahead of the Patriot Awards on Fox Nation. You don't want to miss it. From Nashville, God bless and take care.